Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and as always with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Yes, g'day Matt, here I am again and uh, uh, absolutely enjoying things. We're, we've uh, had a few recently, so we're, we're getting back up to speed with our podcast, so many interesting people. And uh, Yes, we are. I'm, I'm loving it today, off to America again today. Yes, we are. We're off to talk to Dr. Shante D. Deloach, and she's the founder and executive director of Luminous Psychological Services. Now, from urban professionals, academics, and community activists, and those in the entertainment industry, Dr. Deloach is changing the aesthetics of psychological wellness. Ah, yes, the entertainment industry, that that uh, that fabled, famed place full of fabulously fragile people, of which, <laughs> uh, of which I was one some years ago, and I think... Uh, and me too. <laughs> uh, I, no, I, sometimes I think I'm still in it, but it's um, uh, the, the, the greatest skill that a therapist can have is improvisation. And, uh, but, yes. So we're going to talk to her. Now, of course, remembering to remind everybody that, mm. uh, you know, if you love these podcasts and you yes. love what we're doing, and we're going to be talking to Shante, who we've got some stuff in the magazine, oh, come yes. in and, uh, and, and subscribe to the magazine because it gets you the whole uh, academy and you have education up to your eyeballs. It'll be absolutely fantastic. So uh, please check us out at thescienceofpsychotherapy.net. Yes, wonderful. We'd love to have you as part of the tribe. Okay, let's go across to America and say hi to Shante. Shante, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Thanks for your time and uh, great to meet you. Great. Thank you all for having me. I'm looking forward to being in conversation with you both. Yes, and yes, Richard here. We've talked about a little bit the introduction of your new book, which is absolutely fantastic, talking about this whole thing of telemental health, uh, which doesn't mean that there's something wrong with your television. Uh, <laughs> it means it means there's something wrong with, or there's something changed about the world. Can you give us just a, a little bit of a, just sort of a, a bit of an intro into what kind of who you are? We've said a few things, but just what brought you into sure. this discussion? Sure. Well, I think I started this discussion really with other therapists who, like me, have had to do a lot of pivoting in the past year and a half uh, in response to the world, our continued need to show up for our clients and engage in our work. (laughs) And so I wrote this book uh, about the challenges of teletherapy or telemental health and just the evolving nature of psychotherapy and the work that we're doing, which includes teletherapy, but also just this wellness orientation, the integration of more aspects of our identity and issues that many of us face in the world, the social justice movements that we are seeing, uh, and just how we are going to evolve with the times and best meet, meet our clients' needs. Yeah, it's been certainly a dramatic change on so many different fronts. For, for us on the front line of mental health, um, it's been a real, real challenge. But I think one of the the first thoughts that I I came up, uh, across just in general before we get sort of into some of the things in your book is that we have this strange juxtaposition or, or anomaly of 
we get surprised uh, and we get confused about sudden change, yet evolutionarily we're quite developed and set up for 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 sudden change we're we're organized for disasters and 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 things I, you know i know uh, my wife uh, tells me that i'm I, it, my fat is not that bad but but we we actually have about <laughs> we have about four or five weeks of healthy you know generally to sort of carry us through sudden storms sudden environmental issues sudden changes uh but sometimes on the mental and on the social evolution, we're, we're, we're kind of unkeen about it. But look at what we've done, the social changes you're talking about with the, the, the need for uh, uh, acknowledging what we've done to, um, to, mm-hmm. to create minorities and make those minorities mm-hmm. minor. And you yes. talk about that in the book. You talk about just this, this strange thing of having to adapt. There's just a whole bunch of adaptation and movement yeah. and shift and acceptance and that's what mm. I think I'd love to hear you just address first before some of these yeah. specific details of, of technical mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah I really appreciate you, you just sharing that because I think while a lot of the focus has been on the change and how hard this past year and a half have been for so many people and it has right like, yeah, it yeah. has absolutely been difficult and still is for so many people we are just remarkably resilient. And I think we need only look at our children to really see how resilient folks are. And even the the smallest among us um, have been able to adjust to being home and learning in these new and different ways and being in cramped quarters and living with fear and uncertainty. And as you said, that's not necessarily something that is new if we look beyond our present moment, right? Rather, that is part of our inheritance. And so I think sometimes we need reminding of that, that that is part of our inheritance, that we have some of those skills. Um, We may have been through difficult times, even within our lived lifetime, that uh, we can draw upon to help us navigate these circumstances. Uh, But I think I have come to this point, I don't know whether we're out of it yet, but I've come to this point really encouraged by our ability to deal with change, even when we're fighting and screaming and, you know, not enjoying it at all, that we are just remarkably strong and capable of uh, adjusting to all of the the stuff that um, life has thrown at us. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. Then, though, in in order for us to collectively be able to manage these changes, we have this extraordinary um, capacity as human beings to to create a a unifying thing that we're able to refer to, which we call a book, um, <laughs> is one of the things, or you know, this written this written language where we can mm-hmm. we can exchange. So. So that's what I think is the beauty of of what you've done. Is saying that we've all got these ideas. Let's kind mm-hmm. of bring ourselves. Let's integrate. I mean, I've got lots of thoughts about telling health and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm reading your books. Like, oh, that's that's a better thought. So when you come into this, you do start just with a fairly pragmatic, functional couple of uh, chapters. 
And mm-hmm. so uh, it it broadens out as the book goes through into into the experiential frame. Yeah. So just tell us about this early stage of uh, mm-hmm. of just getting in, getting set up, getting getting. Mm-hmm. Is it a mindset? What what are some of the things we have to adapt to uh, in this? Yeah, I think that's a good point that it is first and foremost a mindset that we have to adjust to relating and connecting through video and through technology. And especially for those of us who were forming new relationships through technology, that was also very different. It is a different experience to continue relationships um, through technology versus Mm -hmm. meeting someone for the first time, doing those background assessments and so on. That is a different experience that can be more challenging. But Mm. I think our mindset as therapists uh, is one of the first barriers. Often, I think many of us may have a approach to teletherapy from the beginning as something that um, was something to overcome, right? That it was something that was Mm. less than, something that could never compare to the traditional in-person, in-the-office therapy. And for folks who've been practicing teletherapy far before uh, COVID-19, many can attest that There are a lot of ways to be able to connect um, with clients, connect with family and friends, and do so in really meaningful ways and engage in uh, really effective therapy. And the research certainly um, supports that. And then there's the infrastructure, the actual technology um, that is necessary for folks who started in the beginning, like me, perhaps hoping that this was just going to be for a short time, right? <laughs> for a few weeks, maybe a month, two months, we may not have invested in better cameras or microphones or, you know, just some of the infrastructure that may have been uh, necessary. And we soon learn that um, better cameras can make a better experience, right? Like right. just being yeah. able to see our clients, Um in, in better view or a larger monitor than your miniature laptop that we carry around can make a big difference in terms of being able to um, more fully see and engage and connect with our clients. Yeah, yeah. Certainly companies that usually do sort of, you know, these sort of big Zoom calls and have the massive monitors and everything mm-hmm. there feels very immersive. Yes. I, I, I just want to jump back to um, mindset. So I think sometimes, uh, well, for me, certainly, um, during our training, we were taught, you know, this is this is substandard doing something on the yeah. telephone or, or online like mm-hmm. this and to be avoided. And, yes. uh, you know, it, it has to be face-to-face. And, and I think those, mm-hmm. you know, those early trainings, that, that sticks with you. And so that's Absolutely. something we have to overcome. Absolutely. Um, And I really appreciate you bringing that up in terms of training. You know, I myself trained doctoral students and master's level students for the majority of my career before my most recent position. And absolutely, it was something that either we just did not talk about at all, Mm -hmm. or it was presented in a way as, you know, this is an emergency circumstance or something that's done with military professionals because they had to, mm. um, but not something at all that was integrated into training or supervision. And because of that, again, when many folks transitioned to teletherapy, 
we were ill-equipped to do so, both in terms of our mindset, but also the how, the pragmatic aspects of how to do that. And so again, that mindset of really beginning to think about the benefits of teletherapy and moving away from comparing it to in-person therapy um, I think is really is necessary and um, helpful for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was a, before, just before COVID, I was working with a company that, uh, you know, had people sort of all over the country and some in very remote areas They were crying out for more clinicians and, you know, telehealth was the answer, but they were so mm-hmm. opposed to mm-hmm. therapy over screens that they yeah. would rather their people not be connected. And it's just crazy situation. And then, but of course, COVID hit and everything flipped now. Um, mm-hmm. Happily, those people are actually getting good care yeah. in remote areas um, because mm-hmm. of this. Mm. Yeah, I think it's just an, it's an unexpected benefit that because so many more therapists have had to use uh, technology and engage in teletherapy, we now have more people who may be able to benefit um, from therapy as a result of that, even beyond um, the pandemic. One one of the things that's excited me, I believe in in, in a system that I call creative constructionism rather than critical reasoning, Mm -hmm. I I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what it's done is it's actually invited people to be creative um, and inventive and uh, innovative uh, in in their work. And it's really, on a sort of a positive side, it's questioned our rigidity to methodologies. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, speak a bit about that because you've got a few things in in here in the chapters that, that I I, re- I really love. Uh, concierge therapy. I mean, there's a few things mm-hmm. very creative. Uh, I'd love to hear a bit mm-hmm. more about that. Yeah, like I love the creativity that is coming out of this time. And, you know, I think about um, the times where I have engaged in international trauma response and disaster um, mental health teams that required us to be innovative and use what we had. We were resourceful because of the conditions under which we were working. And I think I had to rely on similar skills and draw on that experience during this time. Um, With the chapter on concierge therapy, you know, it's interesting. I think concierge therapy has received, and concierge medicine is kind of an umbrella um, term, has received a lot more attention in recent years. It's also received some criticism during um, the pandemic, during a time of public health and attention to public access to health. Um, But I think with concierge therapy in particular, I think it has become more popular with therapists who are burned out, who are... um, tired of some of the rigidity of the field, of low reimbursement rates from insurance companies who want greater flexibility to engage in uh, therapy in the ways that feel most effective um, and that clients are asking for and want to be more responsive to client needs. And so it makes sense that uh, therapists are turning to concierge um, practice in similar ways that uh, medical physicians turn to concierge um, medicine some years back. Could you just give us a little bit of an idea of what that looks like? 
Yeah. So, you know, I think of concierge therapy as, you know, having a therapist um, on retainer or some people practice in other ways that require membership-based monthly fees. And in return, um, clients can get a number of additional benefits um, that non-concierge clients would not. So for example, some concierge therapists may offer um, immediate appointments that are available within 24 hours. Um, They may offer uh, home-based therapy or out-of-office kinds of um, treatments. And so a lot of it is about the individualized and flexible approach um, to therapy, and especially that personalized access. They may um, have access to text their therapist. They may have, um, you know, again, just faster turnaround and availability. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because uh, mm-hmm. I've found a couple of interesting things being given permission to do and uh, in my own creativity. And I, mm-hmm. I actually have a client uh, who is local um, and mm-hmm. before before we had the, 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 the sort of shutdowns was having some face-to-face visits. But the face-to-face visits were very difficult because of various um, aspects of, of wandering and shifting and jumping and, uh, and mm-hmm. all those bits and pieces. And over this period of time, we've done therapy on text yeah, and it has proved incredibly uh, more beneficial. It al- it mm. allows for time to stop. You know, I can sort of say, go back and read the text, and you know, don't don't talk to mm-hmm. me until you figured out what I was saying. Uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, but I would never have imagined that a text based uh, therapeutic approach could actually be even better. Than some of mm-hmm. the other things until we had this experience where mm-hmm. where I was able to experiment. Whereas I think with other people, no, it would it it, yes. wouldn't, it wouldn't be effective mm-hmm. at all. So there's mm-hmm. still that 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 individual responsiveness that you need. Yeah, now, absolutely, Richard. We've talked to trauma therapists in the past too, saying that one of the added benefits of doing telehealth is that uh, a lot of trauma clients appreciate the the separation by, you know, talking over Zoom or or Skype or whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, and that they've actually found um, an enhanced therapeutic intervention because of what's happened. Mm-hmm. Have you have you found anything yeah. like that? Absolutely. I think for many people, home is their safe space. And yeah. so their ability to be home and to have some distance from the therapist and be yet still be in their safe space yeah. can allow some clients to feel more safe and free. You're able to delve deeper um, into, especially folks with trauma backgrounds, um, material that they may not have been able to as easily access in the therapy office. Um, And so I think I have found that some clients are more consistent uh, in meeting, you know, meeting in general and showing up for appointments because they don't have to travel. They're able to fit it in. They don't have as many reasons to not attend um, those sessions. And so um, I think that in terms of accessibility, emotional safety, there are a lot of benefits um, to clients mm. being able um, to engage in therapy in this way. Yeah, and probably also in some cases for the therapist. I know I've been in enough scary situations, especially with court mm-hmm. mandated uh, clients yeah. that can be quite mm-hmm. could become aggressive. You know that uh, mm-hmm. you're in no mm-hmm. chance of any harm. 
um, yeah. doing it over the, yeah. over the screens, but in person, it can uh, feel quite uncomfortable sometimes. Absolutely. I mean, in addition, I think just even time of day, there are session times that may um, be necessary to accommodate um, client schedules at times, but may be less um, convenient for us or safe, depending on office location or those kinds of things. And so we may be more willing to have a session at 9 p.m. or 7 a.m. or, you know, something of that nature if we're able to do that by video from home. Mm. Absolutely, certainly. And you and talk about this, you've got this chapter on legal aspects and, and ethical, which is the sort of really yeah. what we're talking about now, the, these mm-hmm. ethics, yeah, being mm-hmm. being being true. I, I was I was um, uh, thinking about that last night as I was thinking this, this, this return to um, the need for us to re-examine what we feel is is truthful in the situation, uh, yeah. and and we've we've had to we've had to explore that again. And one of the things mm-hmm. that I really like is is in the appendices of the book is you you've given a, a number of um, forms or sort of checklists mm-hmm. that are really useful to, to go through. And one of those things, as Matt was bringing up, but Matt, this thing of do you feel safe and, you know, is it safe for the mm-hmm. client? But I just mm-hmm. want to uh, uh, use that as a segue into something that's important, but, you know, because, you know, as we get through the talk, I don't want to miss this. This idea of those individual natures and ways of recognition. So uh, mm-hmm. based on on uh, cultural backgrounds, based on mm-hmm. the sorts of language they like to use. Um, yes. What's the importance that's coming through uh, with this and the, the opportunity that we have? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you framed it as an opportunity because I do think that we are in a moment in, in time where people feel and have more agency in naming themselves, right? In choosing um, how they want to be seen, right? And I think it is an opportunity for therapists to ensure that that space is provided, right? That whether that is by name, gender pronouns, racialized identities, ethnic identities, language, all of those things that we address people Um, in the ways in which they want to be addressed, but also that that is reflected in the work that we're engaging in with them, in our paperwork. Um, And just, you know, a lot of us have been using the same paperwork or we use default paperwork that, you know, is given to us by, you know, uh, websites and different things. And I think it's really important and it's an opportunity for us to examine those Like, are these forced choices limiting in some ways? Are there people and identities that are left out? Um, Do we allow people to name themselves? And in what ways are we um, using that, right? One, to respect and see them fully, um, but also to know them in better ways, Mm. right? That that is part of um, the work that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did, did a lot of uh, background with uh, uh, Milton Erickson or going back through mm-hmm. that. Ernest Rossi was my mm-hmm. mentor, so sort of uh, was was a wonderful thing. But uh, I, I had an opportunity, and there was there was a lot of a sense of um, not necessarily saying this in in the, you know the direct confronting speech, but mm-hmm. it was the saying, "And who am I speaking with?" 
Um, right. And, uh, you know, this is this is a very useful thing both for the broad individual but also when mm-hmm. we look at some of the um, the difficulties. I mean, I've got a client who, who personalises, personifies all her negative aspects. And so mm-hmm. uh, we go, mm-hmm. oh, who are we speaking to now? Oh, we're speaking to her now. Oh, yes. Okay. You know. Yes. Is this something that um, uh, that is is uh, being accepted amongst the profession? What do you think? Do you have a just a broad uh, opinion? Because I know we haven't done research mm-hmm. on this so much. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that there's a lot more being written um, in this regard about one, like how does our paperwork reflect today's needs of clients? Uh-huh. Right. And how even on Zoom or whatever other virtual platform we use, how are people naming themselves? Right. Mm. Are they including their gender preferred pronouns? Right. In our signature lines, do we include that? Right. How are we asking about these things? And so it's moving beyond um, cultural competency, which sounds very static, versus really thinking about the ongoing and very fluid nature of um, identity and language, right? And uh, the evolving way that our clients, even as they are working with us, may come to know themselves in better, clearer ways, and their language may evolve to reflect that. And so even a client that, you know, we started working with a year ago may now identify in a different way, right? Mm. And so we may need to be evolving with them in real time. And I think that that's Mm. um, really important. Yeah. And I guess when you're close with a client, you will naturally pick up those things. But with a new client, I'm picking up that we have to not make so many assumptions, of course, but we have to ask a lot more questions. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And I think questions are, you know, and just that stance of curiosity versus assumptions Mm. um, is our safe zone, right? Like just being curious, um, not assuming based on someone's presentation, how they identify, um, the, the terminology that they use, labels that they use, or whether they consciously reject some labels. And again, coming to understand what that means for them allows us again to know them um, and where they are better. Yeah, well, there you yeah. go, Richard. Richard's king of curiosity, so yeah. you're, in the, you're in the right zone there. That's my main. That's my main thesis. Great, but because one of the things I was thinking about this uh, the other day, because I, I, I don't uh, put a, a thing of of what genders or, or languages I want, and and I'm thinking, uh, am I? What am I doing? Am I? What am I? Message? Am I putting out? And uh, actually, because I, I I turned around and realized in my early. Um, professional uh, development was I was a professional actor, which I think is the most fabulous mm-hmm. training for psychotherapy. Yeah, and uh, and I think uh, uh, it wouldn't even hurt to put down there, you know, uh, gender preference or name preference. I just put whatever's comfortable for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that actually suits me. Mm-hmm. So if someone wants to call me she, that's absolutely fine, and I'll mm-hmm. be totally comfortable. But not everybody. Not everybody would. So I, I think this, mm-hmm. um, there's a there's a lot uh, there's a lot of different ideas. Because when I was an actor, you just I mean I, I was always called the the name of my character. I uh, you know yes. I, I have uh, a very famous uh, very famous Hollywood actress who worked with me, and she just always called me Peter, and, <laughs> and I just went. <laughs> 
oh, she's comfortable with that. You know, I'm okay. You know, uh, but um, first of all, you have to start. You have to start. Uh, and this is what we haven't done. We've imposed, and we we mm. it's like Erickson said that the Erickson said the, the the burden for effective therapy needs to be in the client. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think to that point, I think it is great that you've been comfortable with allowing people to name you or use a name or a nickname or what have yeah. you, you know, nicknames of endearment. Um, for those of us who have been named by others, yes. right, whether that is in terms of racial groups or have names that are difficult to pronounce, you know, based upon language or that kind of thing, just even taking the time, like you all did even, right, to ensure that you were pronouncing my name um, yeah. appropriately matters and can, for a client, especially for someone who has an entire lifetime of experience of someone not doing that, of not being fully seen or people taking the liberty to abbreviate their name or giving them, you know, a more Americanized version of their name without their permission. It can be very empowering and even healing for them to have someone in what they deem a position of power to take that moment to allow them to name themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can still be offended by, by mm-hmm. things. It's just, it's just different things. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but it's given me an opportunity to look at what makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, I just happen to not be uncomfortable with those things because of that history. But mm-hmm. there, there are mm-hmm. other things which I, which I, 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 I do. So anyway, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not therapy for Richard today. But, <laughs> but we, we to each explore explore those things to which, and I love that word comfortable, um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that sense of being strengthened or, or, yes. or dissip- dissipated, dissipated. Yes. With. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the chapters you talk about, um, this very important thing of, of strength and, and dissipation where you, you spend a chapter looking at that, that burnout, that self-care, that, that shared mm-hmm. trauma. Now, you've given that a, a whole chapter of importance, which I mm-hmm. absolutely applaud. What was your thinking? What was your, your sensitivity to that? Well, one, I was tired, right? Like part of it came out of my own fatigue. But, you know, I say that jokingly, but for better or for worse, most of my closest friends are all psychologists. And um, in the conversations that we were having, like there was just this recurrent theme, right? We're saying yes to so many people. Um, We're holding space for a lot of folks. And unlike any other time, really, in our lived experience, we had not been going through the same things alongside our clients. And so this shared trauma that many people have been experiencing was something that was really distinct. Mm, mm. I have been in, called into, you know, different disasters and um, different kinds of emergencies, but I was outside of that community, right? And coming in to provide care to even the therapists or other healthcare providers and frontline workers um, in those settings. Whereas here in this uh, pandemic, what was different is that we were all dealing with the pandemic, 
right? Mm -hmm. COVID-related issues, um, our own struggles. And, you know, I write about some of those things in the book as well. You know, my, my daughter having class in the next room and, you know, all of these things that was part of what I was also juggling, um, just like my clients. And so I think it was really important for therapists to make that visible and really take care of ourselves, recognize what's happening, um, to us and for us, even as we provide care to other people. Yeah. And do you have a sort of a collective where, you know, you have like a peer, maybe not even official peer supervision, but you're Mm -hmm. supportive of each other since all your friends are psychologists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not an official peer supervision group, but during COVID we started having Zoom sessions where we would get together and talk about just all of the things we were experiencing, how we're doing, and just providing support for one another. And because we were friends, we also know one another well and um, know the work. And so that was a difference, I think, between just supervision, which can focus on just the work and the clinical aspects, but also uh, these are people who care about one another and um, wanted to ensure that we did not feel alone in this. Yeah. Yeah. But I think this is a hugely important um, thing to bring out in the nature of supervision, which, which is, I think by error uh, made very much about cases and studies and so on and so forth, that just that's that, that nature of personal framework and uh, Ernie Rossi, we would always come together and, uh, you know, so let's make ourselves comfortable. What do we need to make ourselves comfortable? Yes. Um, and um, uh, and when I was writing the book with uh, with Ernie, we uh, I, I looked at comfortable and I went back to the, the origins and uh, one of the, the potential origins is from the word comfortare, which means to strengthen. Yes. And so when you give comfort to someone, you 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 bring them to their better qualities and their greater strengths yes. and uh, so on and so forth. Yes. So uh, uh, this, this, this book is kind of like that, Matt. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Richard, when we were writing the book together, if you had asked me that question, I would have told you, you write the book. I'll... That's right. We've just written the book on on the the, the many and varied aspects of what we call the science of psychotherapy, sort of following Uh our own own theme. And sometimes when we're, you know, we're we're deep in discussions of the pathology of psychosis and and, and various Mm -hmm. things. How do we explain this to a therapist? You know, Uh know, we're not not trying to, and, and, we very often wanted to say you <laughs> you do it. <laughs> but did did you do a lot of? Um, were you able to interact in writing this in, in writing this book? I mean, you know, your name's on the on the cover, but there's always usually discussions and and things yeah. and interactions with friends. How did that uh, uh, help you as you went along? Yeah, I think it was really helpful because in real time, I was able to check in with colleagues, with friends on like how, not just how they were doing personally, but how they were adjusting, right? What are the challenges that you are facing clinically in the work that you're engaging in, but also personally as you engage in this work? And so that's priceless. Just the ability, one, for me to know I'm not alone in it. Um, and then two, I was also, because 
in my group of friends, I was one of the people who had practiced teletherapy before the pandemic. Uh, You know, people had a lot of questions. Which platform have you been using? Which, you know, how do you do this? And so that was also helpful for them. So it was consultation. It was uh, peer feedback, emotional support, um, all of the above. But yeah, it allowed me to have that um, real-time finger on the pulse of how people were doing. Um, And that included younger, um, less seasoned clinicians who were mentees of mine Mm -hmm. um, and those who were mentors of mine and being able to check in like across the generations of therapists of how people um, were doing. And so that was, that was great to just engage in this intergenerational dialogue um, about the adjustment to teletherapy in particular. Oh, yeah, that's really important. Uh, and, and again, the opportunity that this, um, this, this single event brings out in us is, is that mm-hmm. all generations are in this, uh, what you're saying, we're all in the yeah. same bucket and mm-hmm. going, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Matt and I were, were, were assisted, I suppose, is in the fact that because we're in Australia and we do mm-hmm. a lot of connections. I mean, I have a lot of connections in Europe. I travel over there and I travel to America. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we've been on this thing for years. Um, mm-hmm. uh, have we, as we come into sort of a bit of a wrap up, have we missed something mm-hmm. or is there something that you would, you would like to just say, or is there a summary that you could give us now as we, as we look at the mm-hmm. wind down? Mm-hmm. I think just as a summary, I would say, future directions of psychotherapy are really that it's an invitation for Mm -hmm. us to look more critically at how we were doing things before the pandemic, right? And as you said, Richard, like be more creative, Mm. be more accessible, right? Whether that is by teletherapy or meeting clients in um, different spaces, Um, but also to be more human, to be more authentic. Our clients are wanting to know us and connect with us in different ways. And um, while therapy is not about us and should not be, I do think that our clients are looking for something that is less neutral, than it has been in um, previous versions of psychotherapy. And so I am really excited about where the field is going and really excited to be in conversation with other therapists um, about how they are changing and evolving to meet these needs, to be uh, more race conscious, more justice oriented, integrating wellness and uh being online, even post-pandemic. Well, that's just a lovely wrap-up, Matt. I think I don't think we could have asked for anything better. Absolutely. And really looking forward to the excerpts of your book coming out in the... September, September, September issue okay. of the Science of Psychotherapy. So, um, listeners, look out for that one. We'll, this will be coming out before then, but uh, we'll we'll give you a reminder um, in September. Shante, okay. thank you so much for your time. It's been awesome to get to know you and uh, hear a thank little bit you. about your book. Thank you. Yes, and and so uh, uh, goodbye from us, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> Take care. Right. It was great being in conversation with you both. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, she was just delightful.
Yes, just yes, delightful, was. and uh, it and so it's more than just this the, the, sort of a, a book on teletherapy, uh, on on how to get onto a microphone and a camera. She's really yes. covered a whole lot of interesting ground. Yes, yes, absolutely, and um, really appreciate the sort of the depth that she goes into these other areas, and the fact that you know we're, there's a lot of positives that have come out of this pandemic in terms of us having to adapt. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, ad- adaptation is what makes the human species one of the most successful species on the planet. So we should we should continue doing it. And and it's not that we whinge or we complain. What we do is we we fear sudden change. But it's yeah. one of the most natural aspects of living in in a, a changing world as we do and we're as a species really good at it so um yeah. let's get into it and and be creative as, as as shante supported that idea a great deal all right fantastic well a pleasure as always richard thank you everyone for joining us here on the science of psychotherapy and we'll catch you next time bye for now thanks for listening to the science of psychotherapy podcast for more great science Go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.